you for that reading, Bev. It'd be great if you can keep your Bibles open to uh, Luke 17, as we'll be referring to it throughout. Uh, But let me continue in prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you have set before us. We thank you especially for your word and your spirit uh, and how you teach and guide us to know you better. We pray as we uh, listen and hear from your word today that you'll guide our hearts and our minds to know you uh, more clearly, to know your will for us and to know uh, what needs to be done going forward. We pray that what is said and done is done for your name and the glory of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Well, a little over 22 years ago, uh, just before the year 2000, which makes me feel very old to say that because I used to think 20 years ago was the 80s, but apparently it's the year 2000. Uh, 22 years ago, uh, well, 22 and a half, maybe you say 23 years ago, uh, the world uh, was looking to the future with fear for what was to come. Uh, as we approached the year 2000, uh, many people would have heard the phrase Y2K. Uh, the world was uh, worried about the potential collapse of the society that we knew. Uh, now, Y2K was a pretty simple bug. Uh, essentially, the, the basics of it was that most early computers were made uh, with a calendar system, so the dates on the computer, the internal computer's uh, date, was based on the calendar system of two digits. Uh, so it's like when you used to sign forms back before the year 2000, you would sign it 85, 86, 91, etc. And that's how they worked. So some computers would say 1991, but only the last two digits were what were able to, to function. Uh, and uh, the fear was that when we hit the year 2000, that a lot of computers were essentially going to crash or lose their data or fall apart because they weren't going to be able to process the idea of a four-digit number system, and the whole economic world as we knew it was going to end. Uh, now, in case you didn't pick up on it, that didn't happen. We, we're all still here. Uh, and we got through pretty much all that happened at the end of 1999, the beginning of 2000, was a very, very big party as we celebrated the new millennium. Not much else happened. Uh, But it was an interesting insight into perhaps the nature of our world to to constantly look and seek its end. Uh, Many young people today especially uh, use language when to discuss things like global warming as though it's the the end of life as we know it. Now, I don't want to undermine the very serious nature of global warming and also, I think, the, the responsibility that we have as caretakers of God's earth. But some of the language that you hear to describe it is apocalyptic in nature. The world is going to end. As a a species, we seem driven to try and seek what is going to destroy us. Uh, We love disaster movies where the world seems to collapse based on some sort of pseudoscience. And we seek it. Yet in Scripture, the the end of the world is only signalled by the coming of the kingdom of God. Uh, It's it's pretty much a very strongly expressed fact that when the kingdom of God comes, the old will be wiped away, His people will be brought near and there'll be no more crying, no more pain, no more suffering, and we will worship our Lord together. Uh, That is the truth of Scripture. And so here in this passage today, uh, we have two groups of people who Jesus talks with who uh, look to the future uh, and, and try to seek to understand when this kingdom, when this final apocalypse, so to speak, in the nature of Scripture, will occur. And the very first thing that Jesus actually says to them is that this kingdom that they want, this kingdom they desire and look for, is actually already here. 
Uh, We start with uh, Luke chapter 17, if you read me from verse 20, it says, Once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. The Pharisees come to Jesus and they ask, when the kingdom of God will come? And this is actually really a significant theological uh, question for the Pharisees. It's something that the, the God's people, the, the Jews as they were known, uh, were constantly seeking. Uh, they'd had multiple uprisings during their, the time under Roman government because they believed and they foresaw that the kingdom of God had already arrived and it was their time to rise up uh, and to take it by force. And it's actually part of the reason why uh, the city of Jerusalem and the, the surrounding uh, parts of the nation were essentially, and the Jewish people in general, were considered sort of these rebellious, frustrating and, and difficult people for the Roman government because they kept trying to rise up thinking that the kingdom of God was here. And they kept uh, getting, and the Romans were a very strong and very powerful army and very easily squashed all of these rebellions. So when they come to Jesus and ask this question, it's a loaded question with a lot of historical significance behind it. And yet Jesus' answer to this question is simple and absolutely game-changing for the people of God. He, he says to them, you cannot find it because it is already here. Now, on its own, this, this seems a little vague. Uh, where, where is it? You know, do we have to go look for a castle somewhere or something like that? But if you were to look through the other Gospels and look through the rest of the Bible, you would see very clearly where the kingdom of God is found. Uh, my first reference would be Mark chapter 1, verse 15, when Jesus announces, repent and believe the kingdom of God is here. The Gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. This line, essentially, is Jesus is saying, I am the kingdom of God. And that in itself is incredibly powerful, but when you consider who Jesus is, what he came to do, and where that leads us, it is an amazing and life-changing statement for us. This, This person comes and says, I am the kingdom of God. And so the first thought would be, all right, great, let's get our swords and let's overthrow the government and let's destroy the world so that we can reign. No. This kingdom of God that has come in Jesus Christ has come to instead sacrifice, to die. As you'll see later on in this very verse, he will discuss himself as one who suffers under the people of this earth. It is a kingdom of God defined at the cross and in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And the point that Jesus is simply making here to the Pharisees is that if you want to come to God... You need to go through me. It's uh, significant that this passage immediately follows. It's a verse we didn't read. We did the beginning of chapter 17. And then in between is the story of ten lepers who are healed by Jesus. And only one comes back. And that one leper is the one leper who isn't Jewish, who is a foreigner. Jesus makes it... And yet Jesus responds, why is only this man who doesn't necessarily understand or even seek the kingdom of God, the one that understands, and yet the people of God don't. To get to the Father, to get to salvation, to get to the kingdom of God, you have to go through Jesus. And that's a really fundamental point for the Christian faith, and it's a point that puts it at war with pretty much everything else in this world. 
Uh, I, I, I've been watching uh, on Netflix, uh, it's, called, it's a TV show called God's Favourite Idiot. Uh, it's a comedy. It's not meant to be taken seriously, so I, I don't mind watching it, even though it is incredibly blasphemous. Uh, but one of the things it tries to push is this idea of, um, this polytheistic idea of faith, that we're all kind of touching on the same thing. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, philosophers use the idea of uh, an elephant. One person touches the leg and they, they say God is like a big stump. One person touches the tail and they say God is hairy. One person touches the trunk. Uh, and they're all touching the same animal. Uh, let's just ignore the fact that it's, that's an incredibly arrogant statement for one to say that everyone else has completely missed the point, but me, without any foreknowledge, have somehow recognised this. And point to this very passage as evidence that that can't be true. Because Jesus makes it clear here in this passage and through all of Scripture that the only way to the Father is through him. So you cannot worship another God and find access to the same God that Jesus is referring to here. There's only one way to the Father in Scripture, and that is through Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus then moves on from this to talk to the disciples and he wants, I think he, in this, he, he's immediately discussing to the disciples the, the clarity that is needed to understand the coming of the kingdom of God and, and, and I think help them change their hearts a little bit from seeking its return in a way that's unhelpful. And when I was thinking about this passage, uh, I was reminded of a, an evangelical American Christian, and I won't name him because he has passed away and it feels a bit um, be, you know, unfair to then uh, bring him up, but he, he was a man of prominence in America, um, a man who uh, was a Christian radio host, he ran his own church, he had a lot of people that listened to him and valued his opinion. Uh, and in the uh, mid-2000s, mid, mid he declared that he, through his investigation of Scripture, through his looking at the way it works and the numbers, that Jesus was going to return on May the 21st, 2011. And so his people, uh, the people that listened to him, they, they sold their stuff, they started going around the world, they started trying to tell people to repent because the end is coming. And then the, May, uh, the 21st of May came on October 2000, on, sorry, on 2011. Uh, and again, as you're aware of, nothing happened. So he said he got it wrong. And he told his followers that he, he miscalculated. And so it's the 21st of October 2011. So the 21st of October came around. They all did the same thing, went around telling everyone to repent. 21st of October came. Nothing happened. Here we are. He sought to understand when the kingdom of God was coming. And in his seeking, I think he actually neglected the most important part in that Jesus is the kingdom. To seek the kingdom of God is not to seek when the great tribulation will come upon this world and the sins of the world will be judged. No, it is to seek Jesus with all your heart. And so Jesus clarifies to his disciples here uh, the nature, I think, of his return. And he says to his disciples, if you read me from verse 22, he said to his disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. People will tell you, there he is, or here he is. Do not go running off after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. Jesus uh, directs the disciples to a time beyond his, his resurrection his, and his, ultimately his ascension where they will be, no longer be with him. And he makes it clear to not, to not go and seek the kingdom of God because when it comes, it will be obvious. 
When it comes, the world will know it has returned. Uh, There are many people throughout history who have claimed that the kingdom of God has come. There There were even people at the time of Jesus, the Sadducees, who believed that the kingdom had already come. But Jesus makes it clear that when he returns, the whole world, sinner, saint, will know it. The idea of lightning in the sky, uh, for us, we, we shut our blinds, we've got our, you know, our four-inch glass doors so we don't hear anything outside, uh, and so we don't notice thunder and lightning much. But back in those days, uh, they didn't have street lights, they, they slept in darkness, they didn't have four-inch pane glass. I, mean, I think many people actually have four, four-inch pane glass anyway. But they... Lightning would be known by everyone and it would be seen far and wide. It was not subtle. It was not misunderstood. They didn't see lightning and go, oh, maybe that was a geese. No, they knew that that was lightning. Jesus makes it clear to the people of God that you and everyone will know the kingdom is here. And this is actually really important. When you read some of the passages in Scripture that describe God's returning, he talks about the sinners will, will hide their faces in the mountains. They will cover themselves with the rocks so that the, so the Lord will not see them. That does not sound like people who are confused about what is happening, but people who are very well aware of what has suddenly taken place. It is not a subtle event, but an obvious one. It actually helps us understand, too, uh, the statement in verse 37, when the disciples ask, uh, where, Lord, where will this take place? He says... Where there is a dead body, the vultures will gather. Uh, if, I don't know how many of us have spent lots of time in the desert. Um, I, don't, I don't think there's vultures in the Australian desert, is there? No. Uh, it's probably something that's more inclined to northern Africa uh, and, and, and Israel. But vultures congregate around dead bodies. And the point is, is that it is obvious where the dead body is because the vultures signal it. You, when you see them circling, you know what it means. There is no doubt in the kingdom of God's return. And there's no doubt when it happens that we will all know what is happening. And that's actually uh, really important for us as we we navigate this world. Because again, the early church, not to, to make fun of the early church, they were faithful in their faces of persecution that I've never known. Uh, But they also celebrated great disasters, thinking it was the return of Jesus. Uh, And they didn't actually get a good rep from a lot of people because they would be uh, celebrating when great plagues spread across the earth and celebrating when uh, things would happen. And they they had missed the point that everyone will know that the kingdom of God is here. And that should terrify us a little bit. Because it's not a subtle thing in our hearts, in our life. It's not something where we can, as we're going to read, say to, say to God, can you just wait a moment? I've got to finish my pie. But Jesus then moves on to talk a little bit about, I think, the danger that, that is upon this world in the coming of the kingdom of God. Uh, if you read from verse 25, he says, First he must suffer many things, this is Jesus, and be rejected by this generation, generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up until the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. 
It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left for Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. Jesus' first uh, statement of suffering here, probably in the way that your paragraphs are laid out, is, is, is given to the previous paragraph. But I, what I can see here is that actually Jesus, is, this statement is referring to what is to come. He's both talking about his own suffering in the context of the cross, but also the suffering that will fall his people in the future as they worship and serve him. And the following verses actually make it really clear uh, the biggest danger that in this, king, this world has in relation to the coming of the kingdom of God is indifference. As Jesus talks about the judgment on the people of the time of Noah and the people of Sodom, it's interesting to note that Jesus doesn't go into detail about the great sins that the Old Testament does for these places. No, what does he do? He talks about them getting married, buying and planting gardens, building houses, living their lives like ordinary people, and yet they face destruction. The judgment here is framed in the indifference of the world. The coming of the kingdom of God is placed in a world that doesn't seem to care that it's coming. They are a world, as Jesus says at the very beginning of 25, that has rejected and brought suffering to the kingdom of God, to its people, and now lives in indifference to the God who made them. It's a reason why, if you were to look at the the epistles, Paul describes the people of this world as uh, lost in darkness, asleep. And we as a world, particularly as as Australians, I think we are are well equipped and capable of consuming pleasure to make us indifferent to the world and the realities around us. We We are very good at distracting ourselves. And I say that as someone who watches a lot of Netflix. It's easy to, to entertain ourselves, to distract ourselves, to, to work as hard as you can at your job and not face the realities of the world around you. And I think especially in this context, the reality of a coming kingdom that will be utterly destructive to the people who have rejected it. The, the danger for us as people of faith is not the indifference that will bring us destruction, but that our indifference perhaps will bring destruction on others. Now, I want to caution that. They are responsible, people are responsible for their own sin. That statement is meant to just imply that maybe there's a mission here. Something is coming. Finally, Jesus makes the point that the kingdom of God will separate us. If you read with me from verse 30, It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside should go down and get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife? Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. I tell you that on that night, two people will be in bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other will be left. Verses 31 to 33 make it clear the reality of the kingdom of God and what it means for us in our lives. It uses the example here of a a person on the roof of their house 
that they see the kingdom of God and they do not go inside to get their stuff. Instead, they leave it all to chase it. And now to explain that a little bit more, in, in, in the, the time of Jesus, houses, the roofs of houses were often flat and places where you would spend time, particularly in the cooler parts of the day, uh, and they weren't accessed from inside the house. They would be accessed from the exterior of the house. Uh, hence why in the story of the uh, paralysed man, the men are able to get to the roof of the house without coming into it. And so the, the logic of this, this, this uh, imagery that Jesus is using is simple. You're on the roof, you run down the stairs, you don't even go into the house because you see the kingdom of God is coming and you reject it all. When the kingdom of God comes, we aren't going to have time to do anything else, to finish those last bits of work that we had put aside, to share the gospel with that last friend that needed to hear it. And to some of us in this room, to accept Jesus into our lives, when that moment comes, it is too late. And at the same time, I think, as well, Jesus is talking to us, as we live our lives on this earth today, knowing the kingdom of God is coming, it's almost foolish to be so consumed with the earthly world and the life that we live on it. Whoever lives, lose, whoever preserves their life will lose it whoever loses it will preserve it to live a life that doesn't consider the coming kingdom of god and the the insignificance of the world around us compared to that is foolishness and i say that not to convict you i say that as someone who is just as foolish as all of you who consumes themselves with the pleasures of this world and an indifference to what is happening around me, neglecting the reality that the kingdom of God is coming and his mission is clear. And then finally, Jesus finishes with this point of two, two people. Uh, two people in bed together and two, two people working in a field. And only one of each is taken. And I think it's an image that's meant to, to do a few things. One, I think it's meant to invoke a bit of horror in us. That the person we spend our lives with may not be taken and left behind for judgment. People we love and cherish will be gone. And at the same time, I think there's also a hint here of those that are taken may not look any different to those who are left behind. It's interesting that Jesus you know, uses just examples of mundane, everyday human activities. It's probably easy to read, hear my sermon today and go, well, I can't go home and enjoy anything anymore because it makes me indifferent to the kingdom of God, so I'm going to just be praying for the next rest of which actually, that's really good. Go home and do that. Um, <laughs> but you know what I mean. It's, it's easy to read into this and go, well, now I have to live a life of pain and, forced pain and suffering so that I don't become indifferent. That's not, not what Jesus is trying to get at here. I think what Jesus is trying to get at here is the idea of the heart and its relationship to God. And it's particularly, if we go back to the very start of our reading, the acknowledgement of Jesus as the kingdom. In our midst, the kingdom is here. Two people, one will be taken, identical in every way except what is happening in their heart. There are many men and women who have, have, have publicly declared the grace of God to this world who do not know him. And there are many men and women who sit in silence, who know him well. The reality is, is that the kingdom of God is not about our outward appearance, but our inner heart. 
It is found in Jesus Christ. My encouragement for you going forward is simple, to seek the kingdom of God. And by doing that, you will find what you need. To seek the kingdom of God is simply to seek Jesus. Seek him in the word of God. To seek him in your prayers. To seek him in your service. To do all you can for him. And in that way, you will live a life not of indifference, but of one that welcomes the kingdom on the day that Jesus returns. There are many in this world who seek the end for the wrong reasons. Our encouragement isn't to seek the end of this world, but is instead, I think, to seek its saviour. Wherever you are today, wherever your heart lies, I want to encourage you to consider who Jesus is. He is the bringer of a kingdom brought through his love, through his cross, his blood, his suffering, his resurrection. That is the kingdom of God that we worship. Let me finish in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have brought us out of our sin and into your kingdom, adopted as your children and citizens of you. Lord, we pray that you'll help us to live a life uh, that seeks you first, that seeks the cross in all that we do, seeks to glorify Jesus and love him until the day that he returns. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.